0: This morning we start into a four-week series called Barriers to Belief, and this is a series where what we're doing each of four Sundays we're taking a different question that tends to be one of those nagging questions. For for if you're a non-Christian, it may be one of those questions that you say, "Until I get past that, I don't think I can become a Christian." And if you are a Christian, it might be something where you feel a little bit stalled, where you feel like, "All right, I believe." And I'm trying to walk with Jesus and I'm trying to obey him and and I'm trying to listen and and grow in my faith. But there's a certain question that either I can't get past or I just don't want to admit that I have. I don't want to admit that this is a doubt or a struggle because if I do, maybe I'm betraying God. Maybe he doesn't want me to admit that I have a struggle over here. He doesn't want me to admit that I sometimes doubt his goodness or his power. So I'll just pretend that's not there. And if you pretend that's not there, you are stalled. God wants a deep, close, heart-to-heart connection with each of us. Don't settle for the idea that you're just sort of walking through, not making messes. If you have that question, I want to invite you to lean into it. And, and even before we get into the question that we'll deal with today, which in, in a lot of ways is the biggest a uh, barrier to belief that a lot of people have, and that's the whole question of where is God and how is God involved with the suffering that we experience? My invitation to you is to look to approach this question and all the questions that we'll deal with, to look to approach these from a standpoint of humility. Now here's what I mean by this. Um, God doesn't want us to hide the fact that we're struggling and doubting. Frankly, He already knows. You don't have to pretend that's not going on. You don't have to have it all together. But what I want to warn against is that there are times where we get exasperated enough that our attitude towards God is basically, God, you got some explaining to do. And I just want to say, God doesn't owe you an explanation. And God doesn't owe me an explanation. God is God. We are creatures, And when it comes to these things, I'll I'll say, I I don't know this for sure, God is a merciful God though. So if you come with the attitude, God, you got some explaining to do, he may still meet you in that and show you mercy and show you grace and look to lead you through that. But what I guarantee is that if you come to God from the standpoint of saying, I'm just, I'm in this God and I believe and I'm trying, I'm trying to figure this out, but I'm stuck and I need your help. I need you to show me grace in this. I need you to walk me through this. I need you to meet me in this way. I guarantee you he will. Because we're told that he will. We're told that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I'm not asking you to come pretending that you don't have questions, but I am inviting you to come with at least a starting point of confidence that the God that we are approaching is a God who is worth pursuing as you wrestle through those nagging questions. As I said, the one that we deal with today is probably the biggest one That most of us. And for centuries long, people have wrestled with, and that's God's role in suffering. And where is he and why does he allow suffering? And so to walk through that, we're going to walk through a passage in a book that is all about where God is during suffering. And that's the book of Job. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open up to Job chapter 40. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen or on your bulletin insert as we're going to read through Job chapter 40, verses 6 through 14. So, Starting in verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand Bury them in the dust together, shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you speak. Father, we approach you, and and I just know that there are people here with heavy hearts. We want to know you. We want to trust you. We don't want to be stuck, and at the same time, we have questions, we have complaints, we have grief. I pray that you really meet us this morning. I pray that you receive glory and praise and honor, and I also pray that you show us the grace of meeting us in our doubts and struggles and questions before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, um, the question that we deal with in week one here of Barriers to Belief is the question of suffering. As the idea of looking around and however much you suffered, whether you come in here this morning with a lot on your heart because you've experienced grief and loss or because you're physically sick, or somebody that you love is physically sick, or because you're, you've started a business and it just didn't do what you thought it was going to do, and now you're in financial suffering, or there's some kind of relational suffering. Um, or if you're just thinking about it and saying, all right, right now, I, I couldn't claim that I'm in intense suffering right now, but I, I know what it's been like, and I look at other people, and I'm trying to put the pieces together here. I'm trying to figure out how this works. Because the question of suffering is something that seems to pick God against himself. To to just kind of put it succinctly, the question of suffering seems to make us choose between God's sovereignty and his goodness. Because on the one hand, we can say, all right, I believe in a good God. I I believe in a God who's loving. I believe in a God who has my best interests at heart and, and he shows me grace and mercy, so I believe in that God. But if I believe in that God, it's hard for me also to believe that that God has all power. Because it seems like if that God had all power, things would be going differently. My friends wouldn't be sick. My loved one wouldn't have died. This business wouldn't have gone the way it was. I wouldn't have experienced those evil attacks. Not to even go beyond that and to think about the horrific things happening in the world. And we deal with the floods and the earthquakes and then the acts of evil with children being sold into slavery. We look at these things and we say, all right, I can believe in a good God. But he sort of becomes like a good friend who's sitting by your bedside when you're really sick and says, Man, I would do anything to make you well. And when they say that, they're like, that's really nice. That makes me feel good. It's good to feel loved. Does it help you at all? It doesn't help you at all. It's it feels nice. Um, but the other end of it is we can say, no, 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 I believe in a God who's all-powerful. I believe a God in a God who speaks and stars go where he tells them to go. I believe in a God who is in utter control of everything happening in the world. I believe that God. But then you can say, well, if I believe in that God, it's hard for me then to get to the point of believing that he's good because if that God with all power made this kind of world and has led me in this kind of life, I have some questions about his goodness. And I want to also acknowledge, as we talk about this, this is not just a theoretical issue. And for some of us, we might be at a point where we say, all right, I'm I'm not suffering intensely right now, so I'm able to try to sort of distance myself and think about this from a theoretical standpoint. But most of us are not there. Most of us, this is a gut-level question. And the gut-level question behind this issue is the gut-level question, can I trust God? I want to trust Him. Can I trust Him? Am I making a bad bet here, though, by trusting God? If he's the kind of God who has all power and has all goodness, and yet this is the result of it. And so to do that, we'll walk through the passage that we already read through in the book of Job. And, and admittedly, it's, it's not even true that we're walking into the middle of a book. We're walking near the end of a book. Forty-two chapters in Job, we're reading from Job chapter 40. So I, I will do some things to try to create some context for all of this. But basically, we're going to see this flow out in three ways through this passage, through these nine verses. We're going to start with a question. Then we're going to move to, to an invitation that God gives. And then finally, we're going to move toward the implication. So we start with a question. And the question is basically this, is God just? Now look at verses six and seven with me, and then I'll, I'll, I'll look to go backwards. But he sa- it says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. Now, some of you are going to be familiar with this book. Some of you much less familiar. And so um, just to go all the way back to the beginning, if you started the book of Job, it begins with a scene in heaven and you have God having a conversation with Satan. And God points out, have you noticed Job? Have you noticed this guy? He's so obedient, he's so reverent, he's so blameless, he's consistently doing godly things, even when it makes his life more difficult. He's the most prayerful, godly, honest, full of integrity person on the earth. And Satan basically says, that's because you're good to him. If his life got hard, if you made him suffer, he would curse you to your face. And then what ends up flowing out from there is that God, in essence, says to Satan, go for it. Go for it. Try to prove your point. Now, already, you guys are like, we're in chapter one. I got some questions. That's, I'm not sure I'm okay with this. I'm not sure I'm okay with that premise for a book. And and so a couple things on this. The first thing on this is to remember, all right, so this is wisdom literature. This is a poem and this is wisdom literature. And what it's doing in a really powerful way is it's letting us in on an eternal question. And so if you're primarily coming away from this saying, well, I have questions about how that bet went down between God and Satan, we're missing the center of what this book is doing the center of what this book is doing is putting us in a scenario where somebody who doesn't deserve to suffer is suffering and he doesn't know why. In fact, I'll give you a quick spoiler. By the end of the book, he still doesn't know why. So we get to walk through this and try to figure out how do you handle this when you're suffering and you don't know why. And then the way pretty much the rest of the book unfolds is that Job is trying to figure out what's going on. And he's talking with his three friends, or as we like to call them, his three friends. (laughs) Because these guys come to Job, and at first they're comforting him, but then basically all three of them have the same message for Job. They say, Job, God rewards people who do good things, and God punishes people who do bad things. So you're clearly being punished. You clearly did bad things. You just fess up, they don't know what it is that he's done, but clearly you've done something bad, you need to fess up, and once you fess up, God will fix all of this. And the odd thing about Job is he mostly agrees with his friends. He starts with the same premise, he says, yes, God rewards those who follow him, and God punishes those who deserve to be punished, but he's basically saying, I appear to be an exception. I didn't do something to deserve this, and yet I clearly am suffering. And there's a war between him and his friends on what to do with this. And it reaches a point that leads to the question that God asks in verse 8. So look at verse 8. He asks Job, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? He's asking Job, are you really ready to question whether or not I'm just? And the reason he asked Job this question is because Job was at the point that he was ready to question whether or not God was just. He does this throughout there's this building sense where first he's just mystified and he's saying I can't figure out what's going on but there's maybe there's there's flashes of faith All right, I still do believe in God and, and I know that he's higher than I am and so there, there might be an explanation but as things go on and part of it says he's becoming infuriated with his friends he becomes more and more self-justified he becomes more and more from the standpoint of saying I don't deserve this and you know what I want to talk to God I want a showdown. I'm going to go to God and I'm going to lay out my case and he's got some explaining to do. God's going to have to tell me how this all works. And he starts to complain more broadly about the world. And he looks at his own suffering, and then he also looks at the suffering of vulnerable people in the world and the wicked people that oppress them. And he's saying, oh, there are families that are being cheated out of their homes, and then there are children who are being taken away from their parents, and then these poor people are going around, and they're hungry, and they're naked, and they're trying to find shelter, and these rich people are laughing it up, and they're rich and happy, And then he ends that whole passage. In fact, if you want to look it up later, um, Job 24, verses 1 through 12. In verse 12, he basically says all of this. And then he says, but God does nothing. He begins to say, this is not a just world. And I got some questions for God. I'm wondering whether or not he's really just. And it's worth pausing here to just recognize this is not a crazy question for Job to ask. There's pretty understandable reasons for how he got here. And so I want to also say, if any of you are sort of like, I think I'm with Job on this one, (laughs) I'm kind of questioning, there's probably a reason why you got there. You're not crazy for asking this question. This is a question that's asked throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is a consistent question, which by the way means you're probably not going to walk out of here this morning being like, huh, solved. I can't make that promise to you. You're not going to walk out of here like this. This is a deep, eternal question. If you're at the point of saying, gosh, I'm wondering if God is really just. I'm wondering if God is really good. There's good reasons why you would get there. And this is the starting point. This is the basis of how we come to this whole question of God allowing suffering is to come to it by saying, the world doesn't seem to work as it would if there was a just God. And maybe similarly to Job, we look around at the world and we're like, man, you got these rich actors and athletes and politicians full of corruption and doing all kinds of immoral things and just living lives that have no awareness of God whatsoever, but they seem to have it pretty good. These people are around the most beautiful people in the world. Their faces are plastered on billboards and magazines are all over TV. They have lots of money. They have access to anything that they want. It seems to go pretty well for them. And here I am limping along week to week trying to do the right thing. Maybe I've hitched my horse to the wrong wagon, wagon to the wrong horse. Yeah, I said it wrong. Who cares? Um, Maybe I've made a bad bet by betting on God here. Maybe God isn't just. There's a reason why we get to this point. And it doesn't even have to be because other people are acting evil. It could just be that you're saying, you know what? I've looked to live right and my kid's sick. I've looked to live right, and my husband died. I've looked to live right and then I started this business and I prayed about it before I did, and it just went wrong. It doesn't even have to be because somebody else is acting evil. You can just look at it and say, "This doesn't seem right, this doesn't seem just. We all, at some point, come to this question, and so in response to this question from job, God's going to give him an invitation, and that comes in verses nine through 13. and the invitation is basically this: All right, job. I invite you to achieve global justice. I invite you to do the job that you think I'm supposed to do. And he starts this in verse 9 by saying, Do you have an arm like God's? I just imagine Job being like, Well, can't say I do. Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? If so then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. And you can almost imagine Job saying like, I think I left my glory and splendor in the other closet. I don't have the ability to do that. I don't have the ability to clothe myself like the one God of the universe. And so in response to that, in verses 11 through 13, God says, if you want to achieve global justice, let me just describe to you what I'm inviting you to do. Verse 11, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. What he says to Job is, if you want my job, you go ahead and let loose and you judge all the wicked. All these people who are getting away with it, who shouldn't be getting away with it, you go ahead and achieve the global justice that you want. You go ahead and smite them. You go ahead and crush them. You go ahead and make sure that they are dead and buried because of the crimes that they've committed. Job, go for it. And there's at least two problems. Problem number one is the most obvious problem. Just imagine Job for a moment. He's like, all right, rolling up my sleeves. Here we go. I'm going to curse the earth, going to get all these wicked people no lightning is coming out of those fingertips. No mountains are falling on people at the word of Job. So there's just a competence problem to begin with. You say like, well, God, thanks for the invitation. I don't have the capability of doing that. I don't have the capability of just saying the word and the wicked are crushed. So we've got a capability problem. But I think even more powerful, there's a second problem that's raised in this that could be a little more subtle, but I think it's absolutely part of what God's doing here. The second problem is that Job is going to have to ask himself, even if he did have the power to do this, does he have the stomach to do this? God doesn't start by describing his job as something that's all flowery and nice, he says, you know what, Job, if you really want perfect justice, you're going to have to realize a part of getting perfect justice is that the wicked have to be punished. The wrath has to be a part of it. you have got to look at the world and say, there's crimes being committed, so there has to be a punishment. So Job, you're really ready for that? First of all, you don't have the power, but Job, let me ask you, do you have the stomach to do that? And some of you might be asking yourself right now, do I have the stomach to do that? do I have? And some of you might be thinking, yeah, pretty sure I do. (laughs) Pretty sure I do. You're thinking right now about ways that you've been wronged. You're thinking about injustice in the world. And you're like, all right, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have the ability. I'm pretty sure if given the power, I could carry that out. And my suggestion to you is that if you think you could, that's probably because all of those people that you're thinking about wiping out are nameless, faceless people. Think of the God of the universe saying here, you really think it's easy to pour out my wrath on people that I've created? You really think it's easy to bring eternal punishment on people who I love? You really think this is an easy job, Job? You really think you have the stomach for this? I mean, for heaven's sake, most of us don't have the stomach to talk to a friend when they're making bad decisions are like, oh, what's going to happen? What if they don't like me? What if they feel bad? Or if I tell them that I think they made a bad decision, you're really going to have the stomach for this? I don't think that you are. God reveals to Job the reality that this isn't quite as easy as it would look. And, and just to, to illustrate this, I want you to think about um, a, a story that's become a, a famous story in our time um, because of the book, because of the play, because of the, um, because of the movie. Um, the, the story is Les Miserables. Now, some of you have seen the movie, right? All right. Anybody read the book? All right, like one person. I was just checking to see if anybody reads anymore. It's a big, giant book. It's really daunting. But, but the story, there's two core characters in the story. And uh, one of the core characters is the lawman, the inspector Javert. And if you watch the story unfold, Javert is the one who is all concerned with cause and effect with crime and punishment, with, if you do the crime, you got to do the time. If you do this, this is what happens as a result of that. That is how he views the world. And the thing you got to do, if, if you walk through the story, you at least got to give it to him. He is utterly consistent. He holds everybody to the same standard, including himself, which is much more than most of us can say. He is utterly consistent with this. And then the other core character in Les Miserables is Jean Valjean. And the way that the stories of the two men get intertwined is that when he was a young man, Jean Valjean stole a loaf of bread to look to feed his hungry family. And for that, he got caught and thrown in prison. And then after he was thrown in prison, he tried to escape a few times, and he got caught all of those times, and he ended up serving almost two decades in prison for the initial crime of looking to steal bread for his hungry family. Now, here's what I want you just to take in for a moment um, Stealing the bread, was that wrong? Yes, that was wrong. He shouldn't have stolen the bread, that hurts the person who owned the bread. It was wrong to steal the bread. Was it wrong for him to look to escape from prison? Yeah, you guys are like, I don't know. What's the right answer? Yes, it was. It was wrong. All of these things were wrong. And Javert is not incorrect. He's, he's 100% correct. He shouldn't have stolen the bread. There's a punishment for that. He shouldn't have tried to escape from prison. There's a punishment for that. He's not wrong about any of those things. And yet, if you watch the story and you're taking in the reality, when you're looking at Jean Valjean and you're looking at the plight that he's experienced, you are not crying out for justice. You know what you're crying out for? Mercy. Say for heaven's sake, mercy for this man. I understand he shouldn't have stolen the bread. And I agree, he shouldn't have stolen the bread. But his family was hungry and he was at the end of himself. Please just give him some mercy. And I understand he shouldn't have tried to escape. That wasn't right. He should have accepted the punishment for, for what he'd done. But still, he was desperate and he was destitute. And all of these things were going wrong. I'm not saying that any of his crimes were right. But can we have some mercy here? And here's God speaking to Job. And he's saying, are you really ready to do this? Are you at least willing to entertain the idea that maybe the reason why some of the punishment that you desire hasn't been rained down yet is because God is not only a God of justice, but God is a God of what? Mercy. Mercy. Thank God. Thank God for mercy. If we applied the standard that we have for everyone else to ourselves... Let me just say, thank God for mercy. We would not be left standing without mercy. So even at a gut level, we could look at it and say, all right, I thought I wanted justice and I do. I do want a universe. I I do want to believe that God is the kind of God that makes things right, that he fixes things. But man, I, I, I don't want a universe that only has justice. I want a universe that has mercy. I want a universe where God is willing to overlook wrong things that we do. And in the same way that if you were in charge of the entire world and you were in charge of the crime and punishment for the entire world, you might think, no, it'd be easy for me to take that person that committed that crime and throw them into prison. But if your own child or your own brother then had committed the same exact crime, do you know what you would want to do? You'd want to show mercy. You'd want to recognize that we desperately need mercy. And God gives this profound invitation. Job, you want my job? I'll give it to you. Go ahead and take this job. But realize, first of all, you can't do it. And realize, second of all, once you started doing it, you might not be so enamored with what it takes to carry it out. Now, some of us in this room are parents. And for others of you, maybe at some point you've been in charge of something. You've been in charge of a classroom, or you've been in charge of a small group, or you've been in charge of, you know, a daycare or something like that. You've been in a situation where you're in charge of more than one person. And when you're in a situation where you're in charge of more than one person, you have to try to navigate justice and mercy. And man, it's not easy. And you're dealing with it and you're like, oh, I feel like I should probably punish this kid because they hurt that kid and it just would be wrong. But maybe I'll show mercy to this kid and I just won't punish them at all. But that would be kind of bad for this kid because they were hurt by that kid. And, but, but then if I don't show them mercy, what's gonna happen to this other? And you're trying to navigate it all through and you're trying to figure all of that out. God is navigating through justice and mercy for the entire human race who has ever existed. And we're looking at it with three kids or we're looking at it with a classroom of 28 or, or with employees of 50. And we're saying, gosh, I don't know if I can do this. It's almost as if in order to figure out and navigate justice and mercy, you'd have to be God. And it turns out that you would. says, you really want to do this, Job? You can't, and I don't think you would even want to. And then there's a powerful implication that God brings from this in verse 14. And the implication, simply put, is this. If we see that God is the only judge, that means there's also something else that's true of him. The only judge is the only Savior. And seemingly, a little bit out of nowhere, God brings up the idea of saving. He says, all right, Job, if you do all this stuff, if you smite the wicked, if you bury them in the ground, then I myself will will admit that your own right hand can save you. All right, Job, if you're able to do my job, I'll go ahead and step off and I'll give you the accolades. I'll give you the props. But specifically, what he says is I'll conclude that you can save yourself. I'd say, well, what's the connection? Job wasn't talking about being saved, he was just talking about judging rightly. He was talking about justice. But what God seems to be pointing towards here is what we're really after when we're after justice is we're really after salvation. We're really after the idea of being rescued. We're saying, I'm living in a world where things aren't going right. I'm living in a world where there's injustice and there's sin and there's suffering. I need a judge. And God said, yeah, the idea that you're even asking for a judge points towards the idea that you need a savior. You need somebody to rescue this, you, you from this. So you know what Job, and you know what human race, if you really can set up a government that carries out and achieves global justice, if you really can make sure that there's no corruption, if you really can make sure that there's no favoritism, if you guys can really figure this out, you know what, go for it and I'll conclude that you can save yourselves. But if you reach a point of realizing we're really bad at this, that's also the point where you realize not only do we need a judge, we need a savior. Not only do we need justice, we need mercy. And I already said this, but one of the the powerful and kind of troubling things about the book of Job is the book of Job ends without God ever explaining to Job why he suffered. The book of Job ends, in essence, with Job after getting a whole bunch of rhetorical questions about the idea that maybe there's things that God knows that he doesn't. Job says, you know what? I repent and I trust you. And God pours out his mercy and goodness to Job in response to that. Job never ultimately knows the answer. So if we as human beings who suffer and we don't understand our suffering or reading the book of Job closely, then one of the things that's implied to us is you're probably not gonna get answers all the time. There will be times that you look back on suffering that you experienced and years or decades later, you'll be able to say, I think I get why that happened. I think that that happened because God was refining my life in some way and I never would have got to here if he hadn't done that. And other times you might look back at your suffering and say, you know what? I think that that suffering happened because it was just, just, just a reminder of the fact that we live in a broken world and everybody suffers in this broken world. Or it was just a reminder that somebody else has free choice. Or it was just a reminder that I needed to suffer in that way to benefit somebody else later on. And sometimes you'll be able to look at it and, and, and at least you'll be able to say, I think I know why that happened. But there will be other times where you're left mystified. And the only thing that you can call upon is, will I trust God? Will I trust God? And I'll admit, some of you right now might be thinking, that's what you've got for me? (laughs) What you've got for me is an invitation to walk out of here and basically say, I guess I got to trust God. And in a sense, yeah, that's what I got for you. We are not God. God doesn't owe us an explanation. So in a sense, that is what I have for you. But here's my invitation. My invitation is that you don't have to walk out of here saying, Well, I guess I have to trust God. You have the privilege of walking out of here and saying, I can trust God. I can trust God. I can trust the God of the universe. I can trust God that he pours out justice and he pours out mercy. I can trust God when I don't know what in the world is going on. I can trust God when I'm troubled about the things that I'm experiencing. I can trust God when I'm in grief and I'm crying out to him for help. In all of that, I can trust God. And if you're unconvinced, let me show you why you can trust God. Because there was a moment where justice and mercy met and things have never been the same since. Romans chapter three, starting in verse 25, says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Are you following this? He did this to demonstrate his justice. And why did God need to demonstrate his righteousness? Because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Which is, by the way, a little bit of an explanation for what's going on in the Old Testament. There can be a temptation for us to look at the Old Testament and say, oh, back in the Old Testament, the way that God forgave sins is he forgave them by people sacrificing animals. And right here, Paul says, that's not what was going on at all. What was happening when they were sacrificing the animals is that God was saying, I will delay. I will delay. I'll be patient forbearance. I will delay. I will delay. I will delay. But eventually there will be a reckoning. And the reckoning came not by God smiting us all. The reckoning came by God pouring out his wrath on his one and only son. Justice and mercy met on the cross. God's merciful. He could have wiped us out immediately after we'd done these things. He could have wiped up everybody in the Old Testament. He could have wiped you out as soon as you had committed your first sin. But he's been patient. And eventually, when it was time for his wrath to be poured out, for sin to be punished, he sent his son to be punished in our place. And so look at what it says in verse 26. It says, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, so we could see God's utter and complete justice that he punishes sin and injustice. And we can also see God's utter extravagant mercy in that he takes rebellious sinners and makes them his children. And so what I want to say is if you're walking out of here and you're saying, that's all we've got? All we've got is I've got to trust God? I want to tell you, you can trust that God. You can trust the God who sends his one and only son. In fact, five chapters after this, what Paul says is God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means whatever suffering that you've experienced, it's not an accident. God isn't turning his face away. God isn't unaware and God isn't incompetent. God is using every one of those things for your ultimate good. Anytime we get to ask the question, God, why don't you do something? The first answer to that question from God is, I already did something. I already did the big thing. I already put justice and mercy on display and had the meat in perfection. I already took rebellious sinners and brought them into my family as adopted sons and daughters. And not only did I do something, I'm still doing something. I'm still bringing many people further along. I am still working all things together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. When we cry out to God to do something, we get to realize he already has and he already is. So don't walk out of here this morning saying, well, I guess the best we've got is we've just got to trust God. Walk out of here this morning realizing that's a God worth trusting. Realize that whatever you face, you get to trust the God of the universe, that he will work things all together for your good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you don't leave us alone. Thank you that um, even even in the midst of Job, speaking in many ways out of turn, you met him with justice and mercy. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to the cross. Thank you that we've experienced you working all things, even painful things together for our good. And Father, I pray for my friends, I pray for brothers and sisters here who are really struggling to trust you, who are really wondering why they're facing the trials that they're facing. And Father, I pray with your kindness and with your gentleness that you draw their hearts to you, that you give them glimpses of the good things that you're bringing about, and you give them the strength to trust you walking forward, realizing what you've done in the past through Jesus, and what you're doing in the present through working all things together for our good. And Father, I pray for anyone who's especially hurt and I pray that, that they don't leave here today without talking with and praying with a brother or a sister to experience the support and the love that you pour out through your people. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.